The word of our Lord from the prophet Amos. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow to it with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to be people who believe your word, who trust you, who look to you as our hope and our peace and our joy. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, your eternal and living word. Amen. Folks, I'm afraid that out of fear, we've overcorrected. That often happens. You know, you find yourself in a difficult spot and just like a pendulum, it never just stops in the middle. It's always going to swing and overcorrect one way or the other. Well, in the Protestant church, we've overcorrected. You probably know where I'm going with this. Concerning Mary, the mother of Jesus, the mother of our Lord, the mother of God incarnate. Out of fear of adoring her too much, of elevating to her, her too much, we've basically reduced her to a footnote in the scriptures. Now, to be sure, beyond the Gospels, and especially beyond the opening chapters of two Gospels in particular, Matthew and Luke, not much is said about Mary. But what is said about her is profound. And is compelling. In fact, it beckons us and invites us to have the same sort of submissive, surrendering, sold out faith that she had. Despite the complexities, despite the impossibilities, despite all of that, her response, as we read last week in the gospel reading, to the angel Gabriel ought to be the response of all of our lives, every day of our lives. May it be so, according to your word. So right on the heels of the gospel reading last week, we have the gospel reading from this week. And Austin, as you were reading it, I thought, how fitting, because I remember you teaching about it uh, at camp. Perhaps, uh, if I remember correctly, in your mind, the most decisive passage of Scripture about the personhood 
of an unborn child, a pre-born child. The babe leaped in my womb at the sound of your voice. Now think about Elizabeth's greeting to Mary. Blessed are you among women. How is it that I'm so blessed to be greeted by your presence? Remember also the angel Gabriel's greeting to Mary. In Luke chapter 1, as we read it last week, The angel Gabriel says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And the text tells us that she's perplexed. What sort of greeting is this? And I've I've always been fascinating that she's not scared to suddenly be greeted by an angel. She's wondering, wait a minute, what's happening here? And he promises her, he urges her, encourages her, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now notice then Mary's response is formed as a question. How will this be since I'm a virgin? In other words, how's this even possible? You remember Zechariah's response to the angel previously. Just... A short time prior, he was struck mute. Mary, though, is not struck mute. The angel just rolls with it. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And it's now the sixth month with her who was called barren who was called impossible, who was called done, no chance, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary again, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And boom, the angel departs. Fast forward six months, Mary convinces her parents to let her go to the hill country of Judea. And she goes and Elizabeth greets Mary upon her visit. Blessed are you. Notice that that upon hearing... Elizabeth's greeting, Mary then responds with that, that beautiful outcry we call the Magnificat.
My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So you're familiar, no doubt, with the prayer, Hail Mary. It begins, and I'm not going to get into whether or not we ought to pray this prayer or anything of that nature, but notice how it begins. It begins, Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Perfectly biblical there. And we've taken that title, Hail Mary, and think about what we've turned it into. Think about it. We've, we've taken something beautiful, something at least largely biblical, and we've reduced it to a hopeless, helpless football play. Something that never works out. And if it does, of course it's going to be featured on ESPN because it just doesn't happen. We often reduce everything to sports. We reduce culture to sports. We reduce politics to sports. Everything gets pulled down to sports. When you hear Hail Mary, you do not think prayer. You do not think of the mother of our Lord. You think of hopelessness. You think of impossibilities. You think of there's no time and there is no chance. But might as well throw up something. You think of hope against all hope. You think of impossibilities. That phrase on a wing in a prayer accentuates the impossible. The at least highly unlikely. All hope seems lost. On a wing and a prayer is a, a lost cause. Something with only very little, very slight chance of success. It's just not going to happen. It almost can't happen. I wonder if an angel walked into the room of our lives, would our response mimic that of Mary? Or would, would, would it mimic that of the impossible? Something else must be happening. This isn't really an angel. I must be dreaming. Well, God does speak through dreams as well in the scriptures, but I must be imagining things. It's just the chemicals in my brain. The synapses are misfiring. Perhaps it was a, a person 
And I just didn't see him leave. It's interesting that in, in all of our artwork, we depict angels as having wings, right? Now, in the Old Testament you, and in the New Testament, you do read about the cherubim and seraphim and you read about the wings. But the angels, the cherubim and the seraphim, at least, that are depicted in the scriptures, if you saw an image of what's being described, you'd be kind of freaked out. Eyes all over, multiple wings, terrifying looking creatures. In fact, in the ancient world, they were guardians. They were defenders of holy places. They were beasts not to be trifled with. They were to be feared. They were protectors. But interestingly enough, the scriptures describe angels also as protectors, as defenders, but also as messengers. In fact, the word where we get the word angel, it literally means angel messenger. But they are sent to us to share with us, to guard us. Now, I know you're probably thinking, pastor's getting all weird. He's going to start talking about guardian angels and whatnot. So what if I did? But <laughs> the scriptures do say far more about angels. They maybe say far less than we wish, but they do say far more about angels than we in our daily lives are willing to take seriously. Because we are just as, maybe not just as, but we're at least close to as secular as our secular neighbors are. I remember um, just a, a few say a few weeks ago, it was probably a few months ago, maybe, maybe two or three months ago, I was listening to a podcast, and a couple of you have heard me share this, this line, but uh, uh, Douglas Wilson up at Moscow, Idaho, um, he said that uh, most Christians, myself included, he was confessing, he said we are we're almost functionally naturalists. Like in our day-to-day -day lives, we don't take seriously that there are angels and demons. We don't take seriously that we're in the midst of a spiritual warfare that is being played out in daily life. We just kind of go about our business, doing our thing. We'll throw up a prayer when we find ourselves in need. Interesting thing about our needs is that they are, they often seem impossible. And they certainly are ubiquitous. We have needs everywhere. And many of those needs do seem overwhelming. They seem like impossible circumstances. You look at the world around you and you think, my goodness, the world seems so beyond redemption. You read passages like that of the prophet Amos. And you think, how's that even possible? 
a world being put back together. All hope seems lost. Brokenness is ubiquitous. You see it everywhere you turn. Our culture in so many ways seems completely and hopelessly lost. It seems almost like on a wing and a prayer that the church is going to engage culture and try to do something winsome and redemptive to try to save that which is lost. And unfortunately, on top of that, we don't even know where to turn. We don't know who to trust. Folks in power always seem to abuse their power. Folks who ought to be able to do something about brokenness seem so disinterested in doing what it takes. So what are we to do? The impossibilities abound. The impossibilities of our world as we look around us. The impossibilities of our own lives as we look inward. What are we to do? Where are we to turn for help? Who can we trust? But also those are the contexts of our texts this morning. Mary finds herself in an impossible situation. Not just the fact that an angel has revealed to her that she's about to miraculously conceive a child. But also her larger circumstances in life. She's a nobody. Mary was an extremely common name in the ancient world. Naomi said, call me Mary, back in Ruth. Bitter. She's living, she's a little young lady living a hard life in a hard world. She's forgettable, but she's noticed by God Himself. She's forgettable, and yet an angel comes to bring a message to her from God Himself. She's living in a culture that is barely and desperately and almost hopelessly trying to survive in a world that has so much more power than it does, that has so much more influence than it does. Amos, a prophet in the Old Testament, he's speaking to a people who've lost all hope. He's speaking to a people who are being driven to exile. He's speaking to a nation that has been completely and utterly torn down, disintegrated, literally disintegrated taken apart. They have lost their grounding. They have lost the center of their lives. 
much like the postmodern world, they've lost a sense of a horizon, something to look out, to evaluate yourself against. They've lost meaning. They've lost their sense of identity. They've lost everything that was a comfort to them, everything that provided security for them, everything that provided stability for them. It's been taken away. But here's the thing. It's precisely into the impossibilities of a lost and broken world that God enters. That is what Christmas is all about. That is what the, the gospel is all about. That the God who spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light has entered into a world that is dark and broken, that is unstable, that is needy, that is lost, that is diseased, that is torn down, that is empty. And He makes promises that seem impossible. The prophet Amos promises Israel restoration. In that day, that is the day of the Lord, when Yahweh shows up to redeem, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and build it as in the days of old. He promises restoration and he promises plenty. Abundance. Overabundance. He promises what Eden knew. Fruit everywhere you look. Plenty everywhere you look. A place of rest, a place of hope, a place of plenty and peace. Behold, the days are coming when the plowman, that is the one who prepares the fields, shall overtake the reaper, that is the one who reaps the harvest of the fields. No longer will there be need for the ground to lie fallow so that it can rest and recover and recuperate. The moment you're reaping a harvest, here comes the sower ready. The plowman to tear up the ground again to get more seeds in. The treader of grapes shall overtake him who sows the seed. The moment there's a harvest, there's time for more. Time to prepare for more. 
this all seems impossible to Israel because they look at the world around them. They see how lost their cause really is. They see the impossibilities of their circumstances, as do we. We look around and say, Lord, what are you going to do? All hope seems lost. We're at the brink of the end. But He promises to show up. He promises to step into our impossibilities. Just as Mary cried out in her Magnificat, He has seen the humble. He has seen those who are pressed down. Those who have been pushed to the lowest of lows. And He raises them up. He restores them. He brings healing. He brings hope. And that's cause for joy. That is cause for joy. We as believers in Jesus ought to be the most joyful people the world has ever seen. It's not time for despair. It's not time for hopelessness. It's not time for helplessness. Because He is our hope. He is our help. And He is the one who steps into all of life's difficulties. And He makes promises that are bigger than the impossibilities that we face. And He can be counted on. He can be trusted. When we don't know who to trust, we go to the one that we know to trust. Not as a, not as a, a last vain attempt. Not as a cry of hopelessness. Not as one last ditch effort to try to salvage something. But we go to Him knowing that He is always, always faithful. And He can always, always be trusted. Father, we pray that You would help us to trust You. To put our faith in You. To look to You. In all of life's circumstances. In all that we face. In every part of life. To trust in You. To cling to You. To surrender ourselves to You. Knowing that You are good. That You make bold promises. That You keep Your promises. Father, we love You, we trust You, and we pray all this 
in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord and our King. Amen.